Good morning. Uh, Today's scripture reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. The second passage is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. This is the word of the Lord. This Advent and Christmas season seems particularly appropriate in light of the year that we have journeyed through. We're all longing for a lot of things to return back to normal right now longing for schools to return to in-person learning, longing for restaurants and movie theater and movie and theaters and sports to return, longing to travel, longing to see family and friends that we normally would have been able to see. And for many of us, we're longing for loved ones to be restored to health, whether it's from COVID or from cancer. You know, much of the country is longing for the change in a presidential administration that might restore some normalcy to our government. But at the same time, 70 to 80 percent of Republican supporters believe that the election was stolen. Nearly half believe that the current president will be inaugurated on January 20th. Now, if the people I listened to in the march yesterday are an accurate reflection, A not-so-insignificant number of Americans believe that justice must be restored in this latest election. You know, Advent presents an opportunity to honestly acknowledge those parts of our lives and our world that are imperfect. 
and broken and unjust. And while we hope that all the imperfect, broken, and unjust parts of our world might be fixed with a snap of a finger, or perhaps with a change in an administration, we instead discover that the longing of Advent is in fact a long journey, as Neil alluded to in the opening of the service. The restoration never comes as quickly as our feelings do. The Advent season reminds us that we're on this road to restoration. But as the recent election results demonstrate, our ideas of what is going to be restored are quite varied. Our call to worship today was based on the lectionary reading from Psalm 126, where the Israelites were expressing a longing for life back in their homeland. This psalm was written when they were in exile in Babylon. Life was not what they had expected. They were forcibly displaced from the kind of life that they knew, the homes that they lived in and the land that they worked for generations. They were disconnected from the temple in Jerusalem, the center of community and worship, and the representation of God's presence amongst God's people. You know, our longings for restoration, they're real, I'm sure. But I think if you compare it to the Israelites, they might pale in comparison. Can you imagine? You can't work from home to water your crops. You can't feed your animals over Zoom. The fields that you cleared your brush and the brush and trees and rocks of, they don't stay that way without people working on them. Who's now living in your home, your family home, that you might never have known because it was your grandparents that were exiled first? And will the family home even be there if you get to return? A 70-year exile in a foreign land changes everything. And like the Israelites praying the psalm, we all might recognize losses in our lives and in our world that lead us to have these images of what a restored life might be. But what we return to might be quite different from what we're longing for. You know, many lament the loss of the nuclear family in modern society. Some say that if there were two, more two-parent families and if there were more fathers involved in the lives of the children, we wouldn't have as many societal problems as we have now. And while I certainly believe in the value of two-parent homes and involved fathers, the question remains, what sense of family can be restored in the midst of such massive societal changes over the past 70 years? That's about the same time that the Israelites were exiled in Babylon. Author David Brooks reflects on the changes to the nuclear family. Since the 1950s, more women are in the workforce. More men's relative wages have decreased in the same period. Family units have become smaller and more geographically mobile, moving from city to city. Families are more and more disconnected from extended family and living in bigger and bigger houses, separated by large suburban yards. Marriage has shifted from this institution where love means self-sacrifice and compromise to a relationship where love means self-expression and individuality. Since the 60s, people now look to marriage more for self-discovery and personal growth rather than sacrifice. Progressives might be tempted to say, well, that's why marriage is a failed experiment with you know, disconnected fathers, oppression and abusive women, high divorce rates, and uh, ex exclusion of alternative forms of family. So let's just blow it all up. Two-parent heterosexual marriages are a product of the patriarchy and can be replaced with loving, consensual, respectful relationships of any form. 
But look back further into the early 20th century, and we find that this idea of a self-sustaining nuclear family, too, is a relatively modern concept. Until the 20th century, people had large extended family, and they stayed close to one another. So what kind of families and marriages are we longing to see restored? You know, we may ask the same about what it means to be a worshiping community post-pandemic. With vaccines rolling out, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We will indeed meet together again. But what will be the same? And what will be different? We can ask the same about race relations. This year continues to highlight the different experience of life in America that is highly dependent on whether you're white, whether you have a college education, and whether you live near a big city. People talk a lot about race relations and racial reconciliation, but this language is often used by those who have cultural power. Many people of color will say, you can't reconcile a relationship that was never equal and reciprocal. So let's talk about racial conciliation before we talk about racial reconciliation. You know, all of this to say is that being on the road to restoration means that we hold our ideas of what is being restored humbly. We can certainly acknowledge our loss honestly, but we must also acknowledge that our images of restoration are often centered around us in our experiences, in our losses, rather than restoring according to the intent of the author of creation. You know, Advent reminds us of our longing for a different world. But that world isn't made by merely tearing down all and any of this present world. This longing is living in response to the Spirit's work through God's people, made possible through Christ's first arrival and looking forward to his next arrival. The prophet Isaiah, read for us by Matt, conveys images of this future life in Isaiah 61. In fact, these words were written a hundred years before the Israelites were even exiled in Babylon, but they were written for the ears of the hearers who had returned from exile. So Israel in Isaiah's time was rebellious, unfaithful to God, and pretty violent. And it's in fact because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God that gets them exiled in the first place. Yet in God's mercy, through the prophet Isaiah, they are given these images of beauty and of restoration and of justice in all of creation, from cities to gardens, and especially for the poor and the oppressed. The Lord promises a time in Isaiah 61 verse 4, saying, they will rebuild ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew ruined cities that have been dev devastated for generations. Journalist Derek Thompson writes about how cities are a ch the children of catastrophe. The Chicago skyline, you can see a picture of it here, rose from the fire of 1871 that raised the entire city, not just certain parts of it. And the building frenzy that resulted, uh, resulted in this con construction of denser, taller, steel frame buildings that are now known around the world as skyscrapers. During the New York City cholera epidemic in December 1835, Lower Manhattan went up in flames. Firefighters could do nothing except to watch the city go up in flames because the rivers were both were all frozen and there was no access to a steady water supply. 
The fire was visible from 100 miles away, and it was only stopped when the mayor of the New York City authorized the, the destruction of the surrounding buildings to starve the fire of fuel. And in the aftermath, the city rebuilt with wider streets and taller buildings made of stone rather than wood. But the most important innovation was the construction of this Croton Aqueduct. You can see a picture of it here, which brought a stable, water, clean, fresh water supply into the city. And the result? Over the next four decades, the city's population quadrupled to 1.2 million people. So I wonder, what might Chicago or New York City look like today if they had restored things back to the way that they were before the fires? In this Advent season, we acknowledge our losses. We lament the changes, but we are invited to consider what, where this road of restoration leads. It's not a restoration to a world on our terms and expectations, but a restoration to a world on someone else's terms and expectations. The Holy Scriptures describe how in the beginning, humanity is placed in a garden with two trees in it. And nestled between four rivers, this garden was to be worked and stewarded for God's creation. But there is a catastrophe of epic proportions when our first parents turn their eyes from the living God to themselves to find their identity and their purpose in themselves and in the created things. And as scriptures describe the other end of history, we find humanity in a glorious city with a river flowing through it. And that river flows from the very throne of God and the Lamb of God to all nations. And next to this river is the same tree of life found in the original garden, which yields fruit on its limbs every month of the year, not just one season. Year, month upon month, fruit is being born and whose leaves bring healing to all the nations. God invites humans to trust in this storyline of renewal and restoration. This is God's intent for creation. And in this season of Advent, we remember that the road leading to a place of full restoration for all of creation is grounded in the arrival of Jesus Christ. In the, very, in the first Advent, in Jesus' first arrival, Jesus stands up to read the very words of Isaiah that Matt read for us earlier, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And upon reading that scripture, his first words to them are, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Consider that when Jesus stands up to speak these words, the people of Israel are not uh, any longer exiled in a foreign land. But instead, they find themselves there in their own land, but they're under the oppression of a foreign ruler. They didn't have their freedom. They were heavily taxed. They were treated as second-class citizens. And all of Israel was longing for this great leader, the anointed one, to arrive and get them out of this predicament. They wanted life to return to what it was before. And here was someone who sounded like he could be the long-awaited anointed one of Israel who stands up and reads sacred scripture, telling of the Messiah. And he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in me. Imagine what the Israelites were, were hearing. Imagine how their hopes were raised. But also notice what Jesus doesn't quote from Isaiah. He stops short quoting Isaiah 61 by one phrase. He ends that portion with 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he cuts off and the day of the vengeance of our God. You know, what Jesus comes to restore isn't the political, military, or cultural power that the people of Israel hoped to see restored and to hope to see their enemies vanquished. Instead, Jesus comes to offer a healing and a flourishing for all, not just for Israel. Jesus comes to offer good news to any poor, to any who are brokenhearted, to any who are oppressed spiritually and physically. Jesus' arrival indicates that God's plan wasn't just for Israel to benefit from restoration, but for all of creation to benefit as they responded to the good news of Jesus' arrival. The hero for Israel turned out to be the hero for the whole world. The enemy isn't other people groups, or the enemy isn't other the people who hold different ideals from you. The enemy that Jesus came to defeat in the power is the power of sin that that sin holds over humanity and sin's curse, that is death. Israel thought the restoration was for them alone, but Jesus came to renew all peoples in all of God's creation. And for us in 2020, perhaps the Advent season is an opportunity to recognize, honestly, our longings for lost rhythms and lost routines in our own lives. But even more, Advent is an opportunity to humbly hold these longings in light of a larger vision of renewal that God is inviting us to see through God's own Son, Jesus. Our longings, while they are real and they are raw, I think they're often far too small. Our desires for intimacy, our desire for healing, whether it's physical or emotional or relational, our desire just to hug and hold another human being without a mask on. And these are all very real. But they pale in comparison to what God has in store for those who love and trust him. Our hopes are far too limited compared to the kind of renewing work that God has envisioned for the world in light of Christ. But even more, we find that God intends for those who are willing to walk on this road of renewal, don't just to get to enjoy God's renewing work, we actually become part of it. In verse 9, um, Isaiah says, Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people that the Lord has blessed. These words remind us how those who walk the road with God's anointed one, with Jesus, will be a blessing to the nations. And in their waiting, God's people have a responsibility in God's work of renewal. It's a theme that Paul describes later in 1 Thessalonians in his letter to them. He says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. You know, this waiting and longing of God's people is not a passive waiting. Rather, it's an active working out of our trust in God. Paul commands the Thessalonian church to rejoice always, to pray continually, and to give thanks in all circumstances using this continuous active verbs. Waiting and longing in this, for this world to come isn't a hopeless, pitiful, delusional, or even an angry posture for God's people. Instead, it's pregnant with hope and with joy. And gratitude. As we prepare for Christ's second arrival, we look at this world with opportunity. 
Yes, there are places of brokenness and injustice, but they do not have the last say. In Paul's words, we are invited to hold on to what is good and to reject any kind of evil. We've been often brought into the, uh, bought into this idea of evil being a powerless cartoon character or fantastical characters in horror movies that give us a few moments of distraction and excitement from our otherwise comfy lives. But evil is far more subtle and pervasive. You know, whenever schools return in person, I, ref- I hope that we're not just hoping for a return to the same kinds of classrooms and the same kinds of instruction methods that we had prior to COVID. We're invited to ask questions about how students of all backgrounds can be educated more effectively and more equitably. As this pandemic has revealed, that's not happening depending on what kind of neighborhood you live in, what kind of school you have. The shouts for police reform that highlighted the spring and the summer months this year seem to be less prominent on our collective conscience. But our criminal justice system is still characterized by its carceral nature, one that is focused on confinement and punishment, rather than one that is guided by restorative and reforming processes. On Thursday and Friday this week, just two and three days ago, two black men named Brandon Bernard and Alfred Bourgeois were executed in less than a 24-hour period of one another. Three more people are scheduled to be executed before the inauguration, with one of them being Lisa Montgomery, the only woman to have been scheduled for execution in 70 years. Surely there's a different way of doing these. It may be education or criminal justice reform, It could be food security or economic justice or racial justice or imagining a different kind of relationship that humans have with our natural world. This year's COVID pandemic is not something that we would have chosen for ourselves, but rather than railing against how our freedoms are being infringed upon, perhaps we can consider what kind of freedom God is working in this life to come. God is inviting us to participate in that renewing work as we walk on this road. The good news of Advent is that this road and this destination and the kind of work we do on the road does not depend on us. We have a responsibility as we walk the road, but it's God's responsibility to keep us on the road. It's the God of peace who does this remaking work beginning in us. It's God's agency to send Jesus. It's God's agency to take Jesus to the cross. It's God's agency to send his spirit to God's people to do this work on this road. Michael Gerson, the Washington Post opinion columnist and former speechwriter, wrote this week about how this kind of hope does not depend on us. The best response, he says, is found in Advent. The most reassuring message of the season is that the existence of hope does not depend on on us. Amen? He didn't write that. I added that. It does not rely on our virtue or wisdom. It is a delivery from elsewhere. We are not the heroes of the story. Our contribution is to be watchful and open. But hope arrives in awesome humility. God is with us. Jesus is with us. This is everything. End quote. May we, friends, be on this journey on this road to restoration and renewal with Jesus, the one who makes all things new with hope, with joy and gratitude in this Advent season.
Amen.